Well, good morning. I hope that everyone is, is doing well. Again, already go ahead and turn to Ezra 3 if you're not there. You'll have a few moments to find your spot and to find where Ezra is. And I want to start off by asking a question. If, if you need to recap a little bit about what's happening and what's going down in Ezra contextually and uh, historically, you can go back into our website, listen to those messages, and there's some recap there. And occasionally we'll throw in um, some recap information of timeline and, and dates and figures and things like that of, of what's going on. But I want to start off asking a question. What would you say is the goal of the church? What is the goal of the church? What is the, the purpose of the church? Have you ever heard that question asked? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Maybe in the context of why should I go to church? Why should I be a part of a church? What kind of answers have you given? What kind of answers have, have you been given if you've asked that question? Well, is, it, is the answer to that to, to grow, especially numerically, or in influence among the community, among the country and the nations? And to do those things, maybe the the way we do that is we, we love thy neighbor, we meet the needs of, of the community, we, we feed the homeless, we host in a host of other good things that we can do as a church in a community. Is the goal of the church to minister to the needs of its members? by having various types of ministries and opportunities and places to go so that every person from every age has a place to go for them and for them to be a part of. And certainly, we want to be about the ministry of the church. We want to see every member equipped for the ministry, equipped for the work of the ministry, but is the goal of the church to meet just those ministry needs to those particular groups. Maybe the goal of the church is to disciple. That's a, that's a good one. In fact, that's biblical. It's what Jesus said, right? It's, it's a big one. It, it's biblical. We want people, we want members of the church, particularly as elders who we are responsible to to shepherd, to follow Jesus, and to grow in their faith according to scriptures, according to the scriptures, and to grow in Christian character. Can that one be topped? Is that the goal of the church? Is the goal of the church to be about missions and evangelism? The church, the people going out, sharing the gospel, and taking the gospel to the to the nations, fulfilling the Great Commission, which also has a massive element of discipleship, right? Make disciples of all nations and teaching them and baptizing them. What are you baptizing them into? You're baptizing them into the body of Christ. And so there's a priority of church membership and church planting. Missions is huge. Evangelism is vastly important. But what is the ultimate goal of the church? Which one of those is it? 
What is the ultimate goal of the church? I want to tell you this morning that all of those things are glorious. We have been called by our Savior to do such things, but as good as they are, they are not the ultimate goal of the church. The ultimate goal of the church is to worship. It is the only reason why missions, discipleship, preaching, teaching, evangelism, and all ministry exists is to bring about the worship of a supreme God, the God and creator of the universe. The old worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Because if there is any other ultimate goal, then the ultimate goal then is man rather than God. When this age is over, when Christ gathers his own to himself as we have sung, and the unrighteous will be judged, what will everyone be doing from then to eternity? Worship. They will be worshiping the King of Kings. Discipleship and missions and all of those others will be no more. This is the point that um, John Piper has made in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. He goes on to say that the fuel for missions then, the fuel for evangelism and ministry and discipleship is worship. Because as Piper puts it, the way that he does, as Piper does, he says that our aim is to bring them, those who we are evangelizing and discipling and teaching and bringing alongside, is we want them to bring them into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. Now, this isn't just a Piper thing. This is what the scriptures say. Psalm 497, verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let, let many coastlands be glad. Psalm 67, verse 3 and 4, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. We could go on and on throughout the Bible, listing all the various places where God's people are exhorted to worship Him. Singularity. A single-minded worship of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Bible, as we said last week, primarily, first and foremost, is a book about God. It is God who is revealing himself to his, to his people that they would worship him, that they would delight in him, and that they would enjoy him and treasure him and be satisfied in him. In all of that, that is what we call worship. Worshiping God is treasuring God, delighting in God, enjoying God. Worship literally means worth-ship which means our worship is declaring God's worthiness. Our worship declares God's worthiness. Jesus defines for us the place where worship happens and, and actually in a correcting of the Pharisees. He says in Matthew 15, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. He is saying that worship is not just external, but worship is what starts in the heart, and it comes from the heart. There's certainly a whole lot more to worship than that. But let me tell you that it's never less than that. It's never less than that. Worship, however, must be guided then. It is not whatever we want it to be. It can't be according to cultural norms or, or standards. Right worship is with the heart, but yet it is guided in truth. We worship in spirit and in truth, as the Bible tells us. What we want you to see this morning, and what I want you to see this morning from our passage, from Ezra chapter 3, all the way back in the Old Testament, is that there is this renewed pattern of worship by Israel in Jerusalem, and it's worship that is patterned in according to truth. So let's look at Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 1. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shittael, with his kinsmen, and they built an altar of God of Israel, to, of God, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. And, the offer, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From this day of the seventh month, they began offering burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, see his holy, inerrant, inspired word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. The main point of this passage is God's people's, God's people's renewed biblical worship. And why was it renewed? Why was their worship renewed? Because they had just experienced firsthand God's faithfulness in fulfilling his word to them. And so they worshiped him. You know, we're kind of used to the, the Old Testament or the New Testament. Um, and so that when we think about the sacrificial system, we think about all their regulations, and we think about the temple and the feasts, we generally associate them with the Pharisees, and therefore they're bad. 
It was, at least for the Pharisees, and they even did it in the Old Testament as well, they turned those things into a works religion, a religion of, of external. We, we do this just to, because this is our nationality, it's our culture, and we go on and we live the way and according to however we want. It was turned into works in the New Testament. Jesus goes after the Pharisees. This is what we read in Matthew 15. He says their worship is in vain because it was external, which means their worship was no worship at all. But it was God who established this sacrificial system. He's the one who established the altar and the tabernacle and the temple and, and all the regulations and the feasts. We may read the Old Testament and we may find it difficult to understand and we may think, man, this is some crazy stuff. Why would God have his people do all these crazy things? But you have to understand the system of sacrifices that God gave them to his people was a way for his people to be able to fellowship with God. All of those things, the sacrificial systems and all the regulation was actually God's mercy to his people. How can an infinitely holy God dwell with sinners? They needed forgiveness. They needed atonement in order to come before God. It was an intricate, detailed system that was very bloody because we are such sinful creatures and the only way man could ever have fellowship with God is through the sacrifice of another. The ongoing sacrifices in the temple, day after day, feast after feast, all pointed to a holy God who loved his people. And he had mercy on them, giving this system to them so that they could be with him. And so here's God's people in Ezra chapter 3, a God who loves his people, who saved and preserved his remnant. They returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. They haven't sacrificed at all in that time. The temple was destroyed. And they gather in Jerusalem at the site of Solomon's, where Solomon's temple would, stood so grand and so glorious. And they built an altar and they began to offer sacrifices. And why? Because God's people wanted to worship him. They wanted to worship their God and they wanted to worship according to how God had instructed them to worship. So first I want to show you their, their necessity, the necessity of worship. Look with me again at verse 1. It says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. This is interesting. You have to do some background and some research to figure out what's going down in the seventh month and, and all these things. And so we'll talk about that. The seventh month came, and, and the children of Israel, who we already established from verse 70 in chapter 2, had already dispersed back to their individual towns of where they came from in 
Israel. And now they gathered in this seventh month. They assembled once again in Jerusalem, all 42,360 of them. This seventh month is, is actually for us more like September, October, was the most important month in the Jewish calendar. The most important month, because three out of the seven of the most important Jewish holy days fell in that month. The first day of the seventh month, it was a solemn rest. And then at the end of that solemn rest on that day, they would proclaim that solemn rest with, with trumpets, and they, call, and they would feast together called the Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day, they would observe the Day of Atonement to make atonement for themselves before the Lord. That is probably the, the holiest of holy of days of all the Jewish calendar. And then on the 15th of the month started a seven-day feast called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And since they got into the land, this is their first year of their return. If you look down to verse 8, it actually says that. This is their first year of their, of their return. And they gathered on that seventh month as one man in Jerusalem. Which means, if you look at the calendar and you kind of look at it, you can pretty much put together that they had only been in Israel for just a couple of weeks. They haven't been there for over a year or even a couple months. They've been there for just a couple of weeks. Wouldn't it make more sense then for them to take a few more months off, to take a few months off before they would gather together, all 42,000 of them in Jerusalem, maybe even get a little R&R? Why go back to Jerusalem where no one knows you? The temple is a complete wreck and the city is destroyed. They barely had enough time to come up with a plan of how we're going to do life in this new land, a plan of rebuilding their lives and their homes and, and starting their new businesses or whatever it may be. And yet to them and to the Lord, the timing was perfect because the seventh month had come. The holiest of time of the year for them to gather and to worship. And why? Because God would have his people worship him. The worship of God is the priority of God's people because it is the goal and the purpose of all humanity over all other priorities. Even over food and sustenance and life, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, I couldn't get away with, from one of the phrases in verse 1 that said that they gathered as one man. I love that. That is wonderful. That speaks of their, their distinct unity, the, the singularity of of, of thought, the, the one goal, the one mind, the one body, as they gathered around heaps of rubble and destruction of a previous life their forefathers once had. You see, worship prioritizes the community coming together to worship. 
brothers and sisters, we call this corporate worship. Worship certainly happens at the individual level. But to neglect the community or corporate worship, the church, is then to miss altogether what God has created in Christ, a people for himself, to be one body, to be one man, not just individuals. We are meant to be together. God has created a people. Not just one person, but persons a part of one body, the body of Christ. And what we are doing this morning is right in line with God's plan and his will for his people as a necessity to worship. Isn't that amazing? They gathered as one man in Jerusalem. And we, each Lord's Day, we gather together as one body, the body of Christ, for worship. The necessity of worship also has a priority over fear. They worship, they set the altar, verse 3, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. This tension and fear that they have should be no surprise to us. Whenever one group of people moves into a, a new place, the, the people who are already there, generally speaking, are not too happy about it. And for several various different reasons, most of the time because it has to do with culture and, and customs and religion. They're not too happy about it. I mean, when all of a sudden, when 42,360 people move in, they clog Walmart, they empty the shelves, traffic gets heavy, you can't find what you're looking for, no more coffee creamer to find. Bringing in different religions, speaking different languages, yeah, there can be some animosity. There can be some tension. We went on an impromptu camping trip a couple of weeks back, and we were driving on 204 to, toward Savannah, Richmond Hill, everything. you know where the nine-line factory thing is? And um, way before that, I mean, you're kind of talking about in the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden, you look at this sign, and it has words you have no clue how to pronounce. And we Googled it and figured it out that it's a, it's a Hindu temple that opened up like in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. Now, I find that pretty interesting because it is in the middle of rural nowhere. Can you imagine kind of the fear and the trepidation of some of the people who, they probably, most of those Hindus probably live in Savannah, right? And they travel over there, found, or, found cheap property and things like that. Can you imagine the fear and trepidation they must have had to go there. And also the people around there are going, what is that? Right? I mean it seriously. These are how this is how things happen. And so here's the Jews, they're back in in Jerusalem, and they're setting up an altar right there in Jerusalem, and everybody's standing around them going, What are they doing? What do they think they're doing? 
But what did they do? Did they hire security? Did they raise an army? No. They gathered as one man, and they worshipped. I don't believe they were acting in spite of their fears, but I think they were worshipping because out of their fears. They were worshipping because of their fear. Brothers and sisters, what should we do as Christians when we are fearful? We worship the Lord. They worshiped. They offered their sacrifices as soon as they could because that's what they needed most. They needed nearness to God, nearness to the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord. They needed the Lord. And despite their fear, because of their fear, they worshiped. You see, here's what we have to kind of get over in ourselves, is that safety is not found in numbers. Safety is not found in strength, money, influence, sin, or power. This is what Israel failed at time and time again. When the enemies would come against them, what would they do? Would they trust in God, or would they hire Egyptians to come fight for them? Well, what happened when they hired Egyptians to come fight with them? They'd lose. But when they show up with 300,000 men to 1.5 million, God says, watch this. Boom, they're gone. I flex my muscles. I don't have big muscles, but he flexes his, and boom, they're gone. It's my bigger shirt I got on. He just flexes, and they're gone. You see, safety doesn't come in those things. Safety is found in what? Obedience to God and worshiping Him because He is the one and true and living God. And what's amazing to me is here's only 42,000 people amongst probably several thousands and thousands and thousands. And here's God, the Creator, the living God of the universe, and says, yep, that's my people. And watch what I'm going to do. He is the one and true and living God. They showed a priority, the necessity to worship, even because they were fearful. Because they were fearful. And lastly, they showed a necessity of worship by offering their sacrifices. They rebuilt the altar. The sacrifices needed to be made. You see the list of the different ones that, that happened, the, 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 the sacrifices that happened in the morning and evening and the regular sacrifices that were taking place, all spelled out from Exodus 29. And here's Exodus 29, verse 42. I thought this was amazing. And in this section, it speaks of the, the morning and evening sacrifices and the, uh, the regular sacrifices that they are to have and how they're to have them in, in Exodus 29. 42, but listen to this in verse 42. It says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. They began those sacrifices because they may think that they're just the regular sacrifices. They believed the word of God that this is how God would meet his people. That God would meet his people. I will meet with you and speak to you. 
You see, those sacrifices, those daily sacrifices in morning and the evening and the regular sacrifices, they had to be made over and over and over and over again, daily, morning, evening, and plus all the others. And why? Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. And without the forgiveness of sin, God is not going to meet with them and speak to them. You know, one of the biggest lies out there, one of the, you know, one of the biggest lies out there is the problem is that we, we hear this, this thing that says that the problem, the biggest problem that we have, excuse me, is that they, it all lies externally. Our problems are external. They're outside of us. And the solution then to our problems is what? Is within us. The solution lies within you. So the problems are external. I'm going to blame everyone else. But the solution is, I'm going to believe in myself. And yet the Bible and reality that God has built into nature paints a completely different picture. The problem isn't external. The problem is internal. The problem is us, our sin. And there's no solution that comes from inside of us. We need atonement for our sins. And you cannot atone for yourself. Atonement is messy and it is bloody. And for the Israelites, those sacrifices had to come over and over and over and continue generation after generation after generation until the Lamb of God came. Until the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed to take away the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed, or sanctified, excuse me. Brothers and sisters, we do not offer sacrifices so that God will meet with us anymore, do we? Christ has offered that sacrifice. That sacrifice of all time for sins. And now the Holy Spirit dwells within his people and he meets with us. Our worship has been prepared by Christ. Our worship has been prepared by Christ. So, so do you see then now the, and hear the, the necessity of our worship? Because it's been prepared by God through Christ for us that we could come each and every Lord's Day corporately, daily as we go into the Word and we pray and maybe we even have times of singing and we gather together. As groups and small groups, we can worship because it's been prepared 
by Christ. We can come morning and evening, and he will speak to us through his word to us. Because it's been prepared for us by Christ. He has paid the penalty of our sins. He has defeated death and ascended victoriously at the right hand of God. It is him whom we worship. Therefore, our worship, the necessity of our worship is him. The second area of worship that we see from this passage is not only the necessity to worship, but also they had an order of their worship, an order of their worship. Each week I create this, this little sheet here called the order of service, and I print out two copies, I put one up here and I put one in the back, and it serves as a, a guide each week uh, to our gatherings every Sunday. We call it the order of service. But the order of worship, the order to worship that I'm speaking of is not the, not the itinerary of the service, but the how we are to worship. The how we are to worship. And therefore, then it dictates what the itinerary is and, and maybe the structure of the itinerary and how it should be, what should be there and what should not be there. Verse 2 says that when they gathered together, we, they built an altar and they began to worship. Now this is important because, it's the, because it was the precedent that was set before them as God's people to build an altar. God had made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham built an altar there before the Lord, after the covenant was made. These are the, the people. They are the, the seed of Abraham. They're heirs to the same promise. And they constructed an altar according to the scriptures to connect themselves to that promise. And then they began to offer sacrifices upon it. It was an order, a structure to things of how they were going to do it. How did they sacrifice? This is where it gets really specific for us. It says, they did it, how? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. You see, they knew they couldn't just come up with a new way to worship. They couldn't reshape how they were going to approach this holy God. So they had to throw out the window personal tastes and talents, maybe even some of the abundant resources that they might have in one area, or even their own preferences. For 70 years, they were not able to worship as God intended them to. For nine weeks, we were unable to. The principles of a right practice has been set in the scriptures and they were going to worship according to the book. Wouldn't it seem more prudent, though, maybe even wise, to compromise a little bit on how they would worship, how they would offer sacrifices, or what kind of sacrifices they would offer? I mean, they are 
refugees. And they are building an altering and altar and worshiping in a way that, let's face it, it pokes the eye of everyone there. Could be quite offensive and intolerant to the other views. Wouldn't it be smarter or maybe even more wiser to just go along to get along? And doesn't it seem like it's such a waste to sacrifice so many animals when we just got here? Wouldn't it be rather just to put some things away and wait? And when we get a little bit more abundance, we'll give. You know, verse 2 tells us of two, two men, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And by the way, Jesh, uh, Zerubbabel is in the line of Christ. See that from Luke chapter 3. Leaders make a huge difference. And I believe this was a moment where these leaders led their people. They led their people, and what they do? They taught them the scriptures. Jeshua was the high priest, and Zerubbabel was the, the governor. And they taught them the scriptures. No, this is the way we worship the Lord. Truly, this is how we worship him, because it is a cat's to be according to what he has said. Anything less than what the scriptures teach is not worship. So their order of worship had to be according to the scriptures. So what about for us? Are, are those principles of the Old Testament only, are, are they only for the Old Testament? Or, and, and, and now that we are in this, the new covenant, we can appeal to liberty, and we can appeal to freedom and grace, and therefore, does that mean we can, we can worship and we can approach God however we choose? Are all the regulations and restrictions of the old covenant and principles gone? Well, Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes the argument that the law was once our guardian until Christ came, so now we could be free to act in faith and be in faith. And in a sense, he is saying, he said, we have grown up now. We have grown up now in faith, and we no longer need it as our guardian, our parent. Also, we know for certain that our worship is not bound by a particular altar. We haven't built any altar. Our services are not structured around ritual sacrifices of animals. Thank goodness. There are no holy places as we see in the Old Testament. Besides, in each believer. The worship of God, according to the New Testament, has grown up. And we worship in spirit and in truth. In the New Testament, when it comes to worship, the church is, is warned, like he's doing in Galatians chapter 3, he's warning them not to fall back into ritualistic or legalistic worship and religion. 
which included not to let our consciences of worship be imposed with things that are not commanded by God as it is written. Colossians 2 verse 16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all things that, that perish, that they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These things have indeed the appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-religion and asceticism and the severity to the body, but they are of no value in the stopping of the indulgences of the flesh. You see, the point that the New Testament makes and the point that Paul is making here is that it is very much just as concerned with how we worship in the church as the Old Testament is. We worship as much as they do according to what it is written. You see, the same questions that Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the people would have been asking themselves are the same for us. Has God commanded this? Is it in his word? Is it biblical? Is it orthodox? And if it is not then we must be very careful not to violate the consciences of others to whatever we add to the worship. I don't know this, um, I, I know this doesn't answer every question when it comes to corporate worship, and frankly, we don't have time for all that. And there's so many issues and so many other landmines that we could step on together in talking about corporate worship. But remember, our order of worship must be according to what God has said in the scriptures and what he has said to us. It's the reason why we pray in our service. It's why we publicly read the scriptures a couple times, a few times. We preach expositionally. We sing, we give, and we take the ordinances together. There must be an order of worship in how we do the things that we do. And, and lastly, I want to show you that they had a desire of worship. I've already established their priorities, and it's been according to what? It's according to God's word. According to God's word. And all in how we worship must be according to God's word. They, they, had this, they began to start offering sacrifices on this newly built altar, and the timing was perfect. It was the seventh month, 
And very specifically, they kept the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles. A seven-day party. We need to have one of those. I mean, Christ is glorious, right? Seven days. And this is what they would do. Each family would construct small temporary shelters out of sticks and tarps, and they would live in it for those seven days like it's a one big camping trip. And it was to commemorate the way that God had provided and sustained his people in the wilderness for 40 years as they were being prepared to go into the promised land. The festivals and the feasts of Israel and all that they celebrated, including the Feast of Tabernacles, were extremely important. They were extremely important. And in the book of Leviticus, God commands them to, to observe them. Not just because he wants his people to have a good time, but for a reason. He wanted them to observe them. And why? Because these festivals were powerful images and powerful symbols that every year, every month, when they celebrated one of these festivals, it was continually teaching them and taught them the stories of how God had showed them his character and his nature of, of how he is their God and how they are his people. Year after year, in the seventh month, generation after generation, they would hear, they would taste, and they literally would feel for seven days the experience of their forefathers to know one thing, God's faithfulness and God's goodness. And here in the new Exodus, as they come back into the land, they begin to hold to the Feast of the Tabernacles, and they were returning to that experience. It's interesting. It's like, now we got to build tents again. We've just been living in tents. They build tents again, and they, they live in them. But they were not merely ex uh, celebrating the way that God sustained their forefathers through the wilderness. And they weren't just celebrating in sort of the same ways that God sustained their fathers in captivity. But in that feast and in that seven-day uh, celebration in those tents, they were seeing in their own experience how God would sustain them also in the promised land. Brothers and sisters, in the church, we have such symbols. We have such symbols. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper that show us the gospel. And when we take of the bread and we, we, we take of the wine, we are, we are literally, in, in, in a way, symbolically, we are, we are tasting and we are feeling the gospel. That over and over and over is telling us about God's faithfulness and his grace. They tell us a story of God's work and redemption through the whole Bible. As the Lord's Supper and baptism is built into our liturgy as the church, so it was for them. And it creates this biblical worldview. 
And that biblical worldview does what? It builds our desire of worship. It builds our desire of, of, of worship. Because when we take of, of the bread and we take of the wine and when we see baptism, we're not just thinking of what God has accomplished, but we are seeing what God has accomplished right then and right there. And then we're thinking about what he's going to accomplish in the future. And the Feast of the Booths was not just pointing back, but it's pointing forward. In fact, in Zechariah, it talks about the Feast of Booths in a way that talks about that it's pointing to the fulfillment of Christ, to the great feast that all the nations will enjoy and delight and celebrate in. That we would no longer be pilgrims because we are here. And we feast now on the bread and the wine pointing to when we are no longer pilgrims, no longer sojourning in a foreign land, but we will be home with Christ. And that builds our worship. It has its effect and its work in us. And when we fellowship, when we pray with one another, when we study the scriptures together, when we sing together, when we listen to the preaching together, when we experience the ordinances together, it has an effect on us. It draws out our affections for him. And it's building up in us a biblical worldview of the glory of Christ and the supremacy of God that we would enjoy and we would delight in him. It wasn't just a feast. It wasn't just a camping trip. It was about delighting in God. That is the end goal of all of our worship, to find our joy and our delight in the Lord God himself. So why all these symbols? Why all the sacrifice altars and temples? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we read the scriptures? Why do we join churches? Why do we listen to preaching and fellowship with one another and meet together to pray? Why do we do all these things? Because they have all been given to us by the Lord that we would grasp in our hearts and our minds a spiritual and emotional affection for the supremacy of God. True worship is based upon a right understanding of God's nature and value of his worthiness. God's infinite worth in, is in worship is or God's worth is infinite, excuse me, and worship is valuing and treasuring him above all things. Hebrews 13, 15, 16 shows us how we then display God's worthiness. Through him, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of the lips of acknowledging him. First, number one, we offer a sacrifice of praise with what? Our mouths, our lips. We praise him. We thank him. We pray to him. The attitude of our heart toward him and how we speak and how we confess our sins and how we interact with one another through repentance with our lips. We, are, we worship God. We worship God. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. How else do we worship? Through acts of love and doing good and sharing the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. That are pleasing. We display God's worthiness through how we are willing to sacrifice for one another. 
by his mercy and his grace, brothers and sisters, we have been brought in to worship him. And our desires and our affections with each day are being built up more and more to worship him. His infinite worthiness and the supremacy of God in Christ Jesus. I want to close by reading Romans 12.1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship. We worship God for who he is. Romans 11 at the very end has this glorious doxology that we've sung. We've sung together. And it speaks of the worthiness of God. And so no wonder in chapter 12, Paul exhorts us to worship God for his worthiness. For his infinite worth and holiness, we worship. And we present our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Because he has purified us and he has given us Christ's righteousness and that is our spiritual worship. The response of the heart that knows God is to love, treasure, delight, and desire and to enjoy him and to be satisfied in him over all earthly things. That delight overflows into singing and obedience and love and a desire to serve others in Christ's name. That is worship. And I invite you this morning once again to delight, enjoy, and worship the infinite worth of our God who has sent Christ and given his son that we could be redeemed and we can be sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. Would you continually show us what it means to worship you and to delight in you? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.